Let's ask God to help us as we come to his word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, please help me now to preach your word to those who are listening. Help us all to receive this word as it truly is, the word of you, the living God. Help me to be faithful and careful as I teach and apply this word. Help us all to be changed by it and to go into this week enthused to keep proclaiming the glorious gospel of our Saviour Jesus to all who will listen. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, I'd like to begin tonight by giving you a hypothetical scenario uh, that I think is relevant currently. It's June 2020. You've just finished the Empowered Evangelism training course in your growth group, and you've really enjoyed the series. You now have a kind of renewed desire to see the good news or gospel of Jesus go out into our local community here in Bandura. Now, because you want to be informed about where the people of Bandura are at with God, uh, you look up online the latest census data uh, on the religious affiliations of people in our community. Suddenly, you are confronted with the statistical reality that in Bandura, literally thousands of people have indicated no connection with Christianity. And as you stare at those statistics on your computer, you feel again that sense of urgency to proclaim the news of Jesus within our suburb to most to people, most of whom have never had interest in Jesus. But it's not long before that sense of urgency that you've been feeling is kind of replaced by a sense of pessimism that's growing. You see, as you think about it a little, a little more, you start to ask yourself uh, questions like, well, who? Who do we actually have in, in our church that, that could actually have the time and energy to help me in some of these ideas? Uh, what if I come across people in Bandura who are actually quite hostile to the message of Jesus? Do I really want that stress and negativity in my life? And, you know, from what I see, people seem to live pretty comfortable lives in Bandura, even during COVID. It looks as though they think life is pretty good, perhaps without God. Why would they think they need Jesus? And so before long, the urgency you felt five minutes ago is kind of replaced by this overwhelming sense of challenge and doubt. Now, maybe you've experienced uh, similar thoughts and feelings towards the idea of sharing Jesus with the world around you? If so, then the passage that we're looking at tonight is for you. You see, in Acts 13, verses 1 to 12, uh, we see why we can engage in evangelistic efforts with optimism, not pessimism. This brief passage that we're going to look at tonight gives us three central truths that remind us that our mission to share the gospel with the world is actually first and foremost God's mission. He is active in it from first to last, and the passage, I think, shows us three ways this is so. Firstly, God raises up workers for his gospel. Second, God rules over all gospel opposition. And thirdly, God brings fruit from the gospel message. 
These three things combined give us great cause for optimism, not pessimism, when it comes to sharing Christ with the world outside our doors. So let's consider the first thing we learn from this passage about God's role in our mission to share Christ. Uh, Saul and Barnabas are the two main uh, Christians that we see in our passage tonight, are raised up for this task of mission and are sent out. But before we think about these two men, we should pause to think about where we are in the story of Acts so far. Uh, The book of Acts describes how the good news of eternal life in Jesus spread throughout the ancient world after Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension. Acts 13 stands on the edge of a massive development in the book of Acts. In keeping with Jesus' words in Acts 1, verse 8, the gospel has now gone out from Jerusalem into the region of Judea, into Samaria, and is now about to explode out to the very ends of the earth through the organized and intentional missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and his associates. Now, for up to a year at this point in Acts, Saul and Barnabas, two followers of Jesus, had been discipling a new community of believers in the ancient city of Antioch, which is kind of uh, in the top corner of the Mediterranean Sea up there on the map. And as an interesting side note, Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, tells us that it was actually in this city of Antioch that believers in Jesus were first called Christians. So let's turn our attention to the beginning of our passage and look at how Luke describes this early church for us. So from verse 1, Now in the church of Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. So what do we learn about the church at Antioch? Well, we're told that it has prophets and teachers. Now, as much as we might want Luke to elaborate on that, he doesn't. He doesn't tell us how those two roles differed from each other, and nor does he mention uh, which of the names in verse 1 were the prophets and which were the teachers. But what is clear, however, is that Antioch was a church that was blessed with a number of gifted people from all sorts of backgrounds. I mean, we see it there. Uh, We learned from earlier, actually, in Acts chapter 4, that Barnabas was a Cypriot. Uh, Simon and Lucius were most likely from North Africa. uh, Manaean was there who had grown up with Herod. And Saul, the rabbi, was from Tarsus, modern-day Turkey. Different types of men from different places together in the church of Antioch, worshipping the Lord and fasting together, verse 2. Now, based on the, on the context in Acts, it's likely that the worshipping and fasting that we read of uh, here had a particular focus on prayer, a prayer that God might advance the good news of Jesus beyond the city of Antioch 
and to the ends of the earth as Jesus had said back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And in verse 2, we see that God responds to the prayerful worship of his people in Antioch. The Holy Spirit tells, uh, tells the church to set aside Barnabas and Saul uh, for the work of reaching the Gentile nations with the gospel. That time has now come. Now just imagine if you were on the leadership team of let's call it Antioch Presbyterian Church. How would you feel about your two best guys having to leave? I mean, maybe you'd be a little bit shocked or disappointed at the Holy Spirit's choice. You know, Lord, are you sure? You want our two best preachers to leave? Who's going to do the preaching? Who's going to do our growth groups? Who's going to do our training? Now, maybe some of those thoughts went through the the minds of the believers in Antioch. But what's clear in this passage is, is actually their willingness to let go of these guys for the sake of others who don't know Jesus yet. You see, having heard the call of the Holy Spirit, the church returns again to prayerful discernment and fasting, verse 3. And they lay their hands on, um, on these men and send them off. But notice in verse 4 that it's not ultimately the church who sends them off but actually the Holy Spirit. God is involved in this mission from first to last. Now, if taking the gospel to the world is God's mission and God raises up workers for that gospel, we should be asking God to graciously raise up more workers from among us for mission at home and beyond Now, there's a sense in which, as Christians, we are all called to share our faith in Jesus with others. Uh, We learnt this uh, in the Empowered series that many of us uh, were involved with. You see, this is part of us as Christians giving an account for the hope that we have, 1 Peter 3.15. And it's actually what we should be doing as people who love our neighbours that sit under God's judgment until they call on Jesus. But there's actually another sense in which God does raise up particular individuals whose passion, a gifting, and focus in life is on proclaiming the message of Christ to those who don't know him, whether that be in their local community or beyond. And this is what Jesus says to us in Matthew 9, verses 37 to 38. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. See, Jesus wants us praying for more individuals who will take his gospel out to his lost and scattered sheep. One of the ways I've been very encouraged by our church this year is from the enthusiasm that I've seen for our monthly prayer gatherings See, even during COVID times, many of you have chosen to zoom in and join together in prayer, prayer that has a particular focus on the spread of the gospel. Acts 13 shows us that that this is right and good because God 
raises up workers for his harvest. And it is his mission. And as we ask God in these meetings and and elsewhere to raise up more gospel workers, we shouldn't be surprised when we get what we ask for. And that means we we need to be ready to say goodbye to some friends as years go by. You see, some people will stay among us and, and serve Jesus within our local community, but others will go. Some will leave us to go get trained for gospel ministry in another state like Mal Lewis. Some will uh, leave us to serve in distant parts of the world like the Vinicums or Cat. Some will leave us to work as pastors in other churches or serve on different uni campuses or to help in new church plants. Now, it's always hard to say goodbye uh, in to our brothers and sisters when we, uh, when we have to. We know and we love them. And I'm sure it was difficult for the believers in Antioch to say goodbye to Saul and Barnabas. But the thing that makes that difficult moment worthwhile is the knowledge that God would use them to make the gospel known to a world beyond our borders that desperately needs forgiveness and eternal life. Sharing Christ with, the, with lost communities is God's mission, and he raises up workers. Uh, but the second thing we learn about our mission to share Christ is that God rules even in the face of opposition. See, let's look at the opposition to the gospel that Saul and Barnabas experience in this passage. Let's read it from verse 5. Uh, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God to the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled throughout the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Alimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. You see, as soon as Saul and Barnabas arrive on the island of Cyprus, they get straight to the task assigned to them, proclaiming the message of God, the word of God, verse 5. From village to village, uh, they go throughout the island, preaching about Jesus, who he is, what he did, and why we must trust in him and follow him. Now, we're not told anything about the response to the gospel in these other areas of Cyprus. It's only when they arrive at their last stop on the island that, that we're given a detailed description of reaction and response. In the town of Paphos, uh, Barnabas and Saul come face to face with direct opposition to the gospel message. They encounter a Jewish sorcerer named Bar-Jesus, which literally means son of salvation. Uh, He's known later from verse 8 as Alamus. Now, we're told this kind of unusual, almost wizard-like figure in some fashion, works as an attendant to the local Roman ruler, Sergius Paulus. Now, I'm sure that when uh, that Alimus had initial reservations about 
the very idea of this little band of evangelists coming onto his turf and teaching the word of God. I mean, as a Jew, he would have known full well what the true God has to say about sorcery, for one. He despises it. But it's perhaps only when he realises that his boss, Sergius Paulus, is genuinely interested in hearing from these guys the word of God that his opposition really flares up. See, now I think he's thinking, well, if Sergius Paulus buys into this, my job might be at stake. But let's just think about this moment, this invite for a second from the perspective of Barnabas and Saul. You see, what an amazing opportunity. Afternoon tea with the ruler of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. And afternoon tea with the specific purpose of sharing the message of God, the gospel. I mean, these are the kind of moments that we dream of. Imagine if uh, our premier, Dan- Daniel Andrews, invited a group of us to come uh, into his office and speak to him and his cabinet all about the hope that Jesus brings to the world amidst this COVID-19 moment. You see, that's the kind of audience Saul and Barnabas have in this moment with the Roman ruler Sergius Paulus. But it's not long before uh, feelings of excitement evolve into feelings of frustration for Barnabas and Saul. You see, Alamus, the, the Jewish sorcerer, he makes sure he's present in that meeting as well. He's there ready to do what it takes to persuade his boss to reject, his, to reject their message. And you can almost imagine the scene in verse 8. Uh, there's Saul and Barnabas trying to explain sin and, and judgment, but the great forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus' death on the cross. But the whole time, Alimus is there with constant interjections, cynical remarks, baseless accusations against Saul and Barnabas. You can kind of picture him sort of standing off to the side, arms folded, scoffing at every comment rolling his eyes. Now, if we just step back for a moment and think about the bigger picture of Acts, what this description does for us is to provide, in some sense, a preview of the kind of opposition that will become common for Paul on the rest of his mission trips. You see, Alamus, as a Jewish sorcerer, represents opposition to the gospel that is both Jewish and pagan, the two fronts that Paul will constantly run up against uh, as the gospel advances into the Roman Empire. God is helping us to see from the outset of Paul's missionary journeys that all opposition, whether Jewish or Gentile, as frustrating as it is, is no match for God at the end of the day, as we'll soon see. Now, opposition to gospel advancement won't come as a surprise to many of us as Christians. Uh, You've probably read in various missionary email updates 
of moments where there's been great gospel advancement into a particular village only for a local ruler to get frustrated with the new Christian Christian involvement in his community and stir up trouble for the gospel. Or maybe we've seen great fruit come from evangelistic missions on our uni campuses, only for them to seemingly be frustrated by another group hostile to Christians on campus. I remember when I was part of the Christian Union at La Trobe a number of years ago, another student group uh, began copying our advertising posters that we had put up all around the uni. They would then edit them with offensive messages, mocking us and our efforts to promote our talks and having a good laugh at the same time. See, what should we think about our mission? Uh, What should we think about our mission to share Christ in these moments? Moments that are often uncomfortable and intimidating. I mean, is God losing in these moments? Should we just shut up in the face of opposition when we think it's clear that no one actually likes us? Well, the answer from this passage is no. And here's why. Because sharing Christ with the world is God's mission, it carries God's authority. Because sharing Christ is, with the world is God's mission, it carries God's authority. You see, the same Christ who died for sins was raised to life, and he now sits as Lord of all. As God's chosen saviour and king, he goes out into the world by his spirit. And the forces of darkness, which lie behind all opposition, will not prevail against him. As the name of Jesus comes into contact with uh, hostile forces or ideologies, people that oppose it, we, we should be in no doubt about who truly rules in that moment. And you see, look at how this point is demonstrated with what Paul, as he's now known in verse 9, uh, says and does to Alamus. Read it with me from verse 9. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Alamus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came upon him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Now they're pretty full-on words. I wonder if you've ever wanted to say to someone, you are a child of the devil. But that's the message the Holy Spirit gives to Alamus through the apostle. You see, Alamus may have been known to others around him as Bar-Jesus, that grand title, son of salvation. But notice that in verse 10, to God... He was simply known as a son of the devil. He wasn't a friend of righteousness, but he was an enemy. He didn't help people by giving them the truth. He gave them lies. 
Alamus led people off the straight path to God and further down a crooked path to hell. So for someone who offered darkness to people instead of light, his judgment in verse 11 is actually quite fitting. For a time he would experience physically what he'd been giving people spiritually, darkness. This once influential yet deceptive magic man is reduced under God's judgment to a sorry figure, groping about, waving his hands, trying to find someone to lead him. And you see, the tragedy of Alamus is that he stood opposed to the very message that could have saved him. It could have saved him, the gospel, from God's judgment in that moment, but God's judgment ultimately on the final day. You see, what makes the, that's what makes the good news of Jesus so good. Jesus died and rose again so that even an enemy like Elymas could have been forgiven and find life if he had trusted Jesus. But Elymas opposed the message of Jesus and he paid the price. So what does God's judgment on Alamus teach us about our mission to share Jesus with the world? Well, the authority that we see God demonstrate over opposition here in Acts 13 should encourage us to keep sharing and keep speaking the gospel with confidence, even in circumstances of opposition. See, often when opposition comes into our culture and society, we can easily feel a degree of fear or intimidation. We can be scared in many respects to out ourselves as Christians, let alone want to speak about how it's so good for someone else to become a Christian by trusting Jesus. See, how will you respond when you see Alamus-type figures emerge in our world, in our media, in our government, in our universities, in our workplaces. People will come and they'll, they'll scoff at the gospel message as well. They might make baseless accusations against Christians. They may well ensure a hearty skepticism around the idea of Christian witness to other people. And you see, the temptation in those moments of opposition is to always just remain silent and pull back. But Acts 13 encourages us to keep speaking of Jesus wherever we can, whatever opportunities come our way. Keep looking for avenues to proclaim the gospel of Christ to our community because he is Lord. No matter what any opposition says, and unless people turn to Christ in faith and repentance, they will die in their sin. Jesus tells us that in John 8, 24. Now, some of you might think, but I, I know that, but I'm just, not an, I'm just not an apostle Paul. I'm often quiet and shy, and I don't like conflict. Well, just notice here that it's actually not Paul's remarkable courage that makes him stand firm in this moment of opposition. 
We're actually told that it's the power of the Holy Spirit which God gives to him in that moment. Verse 9. So you let this passage remind you that God is the supreme boss over all hostile forces of the gospel in this world. As you trust God and ask for his help, he will empower you to live by the Spirit and likewise stand up under pressure and keep speaking to others of Jesus. But third, God brings fruit from the gospel message. God is the one who opens up hearts to receive the message of the gospel and be saved by it. See, look at verse 12, our final verse. When the proconsul saw what happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now let's just kind of enjoy that last scene for a moment. This man, this Roman ruler who had been locked in spiritual darkness his whole life, just finds life, just now finds life in the light of Jesus. No longer a condemned sinner, he's forgiven. No longer an enemy of God, but made his child. No longer unsettled about what will happen to him after death, but confident in spending eternity with his Saviour in heaven. If you're listening and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the gift and the blessings that Sergius Paulus enjoy here can come to you too as you trust in and follow Jesus as Lord. Now, it's important to note that while the miraculous judgment of Alamus, the blinding, uh, seems to have been some kind of trigger for Sergius Paulus's uh, conversion, the basis of his conversion was the teaching about the Lord that comes out clearly in verse 12. You see, that's what we are told he was truly amazed by. It was something about the, the gospel that just resonated with him. It felt real, it felt true, it felt good. You see, it was not the miracle that made the difference, but the message at the end of the day, the same message that we speak of Jesus today. The gospel had been preached to him, the Lord had opened his heart, and he was saved. And actually, this is the consistent theme we see throughout Acts, God opening hearts. We see it, for example, at the end of Acts 13, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. We see it in Lydia's case in Acts 16, the Lord opened her heart. We see it in the Lord's encouraging words to Paul in Corinth. Don't stop speaking. I have many people in this city. Acts 18. Conversion is the work of God that the Spirit brings through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I've been thinking about uh, this passage, and I'll be honest, the, the conversion of Sergius Paulus, uh, Sergius Paulus has, I think, in some ways exposed my own lack of faith. You see, he, I think, is the exact sort of guy that I might have naturally been pessimistic about when it comes to how he might respond to the gospel. 
I mean, surely a guy who's described as intelligent, who probably knows so much more about this world than I do, surely someone who is powerful, someone who is living the comfortable life, surely that sort of person wouldn't be interested in in the gospel, right? I mean, life must already be great for someone like that. How would they think that it could get any better? Why would they want to hear the gospel? You see, when we forget the the crucial point that it's God who opens up people's hearts, I think this way of thinking will limit those who we speak of Christ to. But the salvation of Sergius Paulus teaches us here to have gospel optimism. That is the kind of attitude that is optimistic about our mission to share Christ because we know that God, not us, saves all sorts of people simply through the message of Jesus that we share. William Carey, the famous missionary to India, was on the money when he said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. God opens the hearts of the gospel. See, Acts 13, 1-12 reminds us that our mission to share Christ with the world is ultimately God's mission. He raises up gospel workers. He rules in the face of gospel opposition and he brings fruit from the gospel message. So just as we close, I want to return again to my opening scenario. But this time, let's approach that scenario through the lens of Acts 13, 1 to 12. So after finishing the empowered course in your growth group, A desire has grown in you to see the gospel go out to those in our community of Bunjara who don't know Christ. And so you look at the census data online and you realize that in Bunjara, literally thousands of people have indicated no connection to Christianity. And as you stare at those stats on the computer screen, you start to feel that urgency to proclaim the gospel within our community here. So what do you do? Well, instead of letting the challenges and the doubts overwhelm you, you read again from Acts 13, 1 to 12. And you remember, actually, this is God's mission. So first you remember that he raises up gospel workers. So instead of worrying about the who, about all the people who aren't able to help you, you start praying that God would raise up others to help you and support you as you think of creative ways to share Christ in Bandura, particularly during the time of COVID. And second, you remember that God rules over gospel opposition. So you commit to speaking about Jesus even when opposition comes because you know the message of the gospel can prevail in those circumstances. And the Holy Spirit will help you in the moments where you need it. And third, you remember that God brings fruit from the gospel message. So instead of being pessimistic about all the reasons a people might have not to believe in Jesus, you choose to have gospel optimism, knowing that God has the power to open up all sorts of Sergius Pauluses and other types of people in Bandura no matter how outwardly comfortable they appear in this world. 
You see, instead of being, instead of desire being overwhelmed by doubt, doubt is now overwhelmed by faith in God, our great evangelist. And so closing your Bible in that moment, you pray and thank God that he loves sinners more than you do and is determined to save them through his mission. Lord, please help us be faithful stewards of your gospel. Amen.